Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I'm an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature, uh, a horror film entitled The Grove. Um, so as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've become sort of fascinated with the notion of self-distribution, but I've found that it's really hard with all the information that's out there to uh, really get a good idea of how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, uh, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or used creative or non-traditional methods to distribute their film. Uh, my hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from this show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. Uh, my interview today is with Randy Mack and Joanna Rudolph. Uh, Randy produced the coming-of-age comedy Burning Annie back in the early aughts, and then Joanna came on as an executive producer early on in the distribution phase. Uh, Burning Annie tells the story of a college student who is obsessed with the Woody Allen movie Annie Hall uh, as he tries to navigate the waters of romance and friendship. Uh, as we discuss in the interview, the journey of releasing Burning Annie in the aughts was a long and difficult one, uh, but in 2017, Randy and Joanna connected again to re-release the film in connection with Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. Uh, meanwhile, Randy went on to make Laundry Day, a dark comedy crime thriller set in New Orleans, and Joanna is on a team making a documentary about the first non-segregated homeless shelter in New York. Uh, in the interview, Randy and Joanna reflect on their uh, experiences with Burning Annie and their other projects, with lots of great insights about the changes the industry has seen over the past two decades. Uh, lots of good stuff here, so without further ado, I bring you my interview with Randy Mack and Joanna Rudolph. So my name is Joanna Rudolph, and uh, I got into filmmaking thanks to a friend of mine who was getting her MFA at the School of Visual Arts, and she was doing a thesis for a thesis, and it entailed shooting a short film, and she needed a producer, and I just kind of threw my hand, I just, yeah, I'll do this, like, I'm not having any business, I've never produced in my life, and I enjoyed doing the work and so I realized that that was something I wanted to continue doing and so that film played a bunch of film festivals won a couple of awards and then this ties into Burning Annie actually because I my next I produced a short film that was written by the same writer as Burning Annie which is the feature film I executive <laughs> and that was much more intensive than the first short film that I worked on and you know that was just money raised through friends and family and then we played one film festival and that was it. Okay. <laughs> we didn't get into any, any other film festivals. Um, but we did almost get acquired that we played the LA Shorts Film Festival, which is pretty reputable. And a distribution company reached out to me and said, Hey, we saw your film in the market. We'd love to acquire your film. We could only pay this much. And I was just so thrilled. So I start, you know, working on all the deliverables that they were asking. I finally submit everything and then they tell me oh sorry you ran out of money we're no longer acquiring Ugh. short films Ugh. are you kidding me i just did like all this work nothing's guaranteed in this in this business right yeah i was a little bummed to say the least 
Um, I was, yeah. It would have been pretty cool to say, hey, my short film got distributed by this company that I don't think exists anymore. But anyway, so, yeah. and then from there, I just tried to get myself experience producing short films. And in the interim, I got involved in, in Burning Annie, as Mandy mentioned in his email to you, and post-production needed finishing funds. And so I, uh, I guess you can admittedly say my parents helped with that because they saw the film at the Hamptons International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And then I came on board to help with the self-release of the film in 2017. So we can go into that some more. Yeah, so I've done a, a bunch of hands, uh, short films, and now I'm producing, I'm going into the documentary film world, which I'm actually really, really, really excited about. I'm producing a doc about the first um, unsegregated housing co-op in New York City. And it's oh, wow. uh, we recently received a grant, the director did, uh, via Firelight Media, which is really reputable. And, and, and we're just really excited to have their support and the director's a fellow. So Cool. Sounds exciting. Uh, yeah. How about you, Randy? Uh, hello. Um, so it's uh, it's sort of, a, I took a, a long way around. I started as a musician and a journalist, mostly through my 20s, and then um, moved to Los Angeles and became kind of basically worked my way up from like assistant to mailroom, became a story editor at Endeavor, um, became the story analyst for Section 8 for their entire run. Um and the whole time I had an eye toward making my own independent films. And um, I went to college with Zach, who was, uh, I mean, I was his editor, basically, on the, a college magazine I, I started. And um, he had an incredible voice, um, not 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 a very technical writer, but an incredible uh, emotion in, in his writing. And so I took this senior project he had written as a feature script to which he had written up kind of by and about his friends in his uh, dorm and rewrote it and attached a couple of producers and a director who was basically a cinematographer, uh, an editor who was kind of overdue for a shot in the director's chair. And I was going to be the kind of creative uh, baby producer and just kind of watch and learn from these more experienced people. And we uh, kind of rushed into production and um, and like then all the wheels basically fell off. And um, I was basically left to kind of um, figure it out on my own. So we ended up getting um, basically crashing and burning and getting this like 11th hour Hail Mary save roughly every six months for about five years. Um, on, and so burning and it was like this. You can either call it the most troubled production ever or like the luckiest production ever. It sort of fits <laughs> both categories. Um, there's a huge... Um, just endlessly long article in Movie Maker magazine about this. Anyone can look up the uh, thing. It's called like the long tortured, you know, success story of Burning Any or something. Um, <laughs> and basically, we we played film festivals from our, our premiere in 2003 to our distribution in 2007 um, as a work in progress. We were never able to finish the film. And we did this whole piecemeal post-production thing where we'd raise money and um like we get into a film festival so we premiered the hamptons uh sort of we call it the the root the world premiere but it it was essentially like it was the capital p premiere we had actually done cinequest before that and dances with films um earlier but those screenings sort of didn't count for a number of reasons um one of which is like we bought all the tickets at the dances with films so no one could come in but cast and crew because we just wanted to show our la-based people kind of where we were at with the thing and uh, so that wasn't really a public screening. And then, and Cinequest was just like, I think we, on Wikipedia, it's the seventh HD movie ever made. Um, 
after like Lovely and Amazing by Nicole House Center and Attack of the Clones and stuff. We were actually using the same <laughs> cameras George had had built for Attack of the Clones on Burning A. But it also meant post-production like impossible because nothing could handle HD um, resolution at the time. It, everything was SD. So there was like down conversions, time code, and then all that stuff got botched in post. And so we were never able to online it correctly. And so we ran to CineQuest with this online that didn't work and was completely out of sync. Um, and somehow from that screening, we got a producer's rep who then got us into Hamptons. And because Hamptons is like so high on the mountain, all the all the festival regional fests that came calling, they didn't have any like good projection format. So they made us yeah. put it on beta SP and then got eaten in the um, by the projectors, essentially. So and during 2003, 2004, Final Cut finally got HD compatible. Even though it, it wasn't even announced, we discovered we could drag files directly from the desktop into the timeline. Even though it wouldn't fail in the import, it would fail in the uh, the open menu, it would fail all the different ways you can import data. But if you dragged it, it would go into the timeline. So we were able to throw out the, the offline version, finally make HD copies, finally play in full res, and, um, and, and, and yet we could never get the audio right. And so the whole thing just kind of limped along. And then we got a distribution deal offer. And they turned out to be fraudulent. They strung us along. We were in the execution stage of this, this kind of too good to be true contract. And then they just disappeared. And then, then it turned out, you know, I opened Daily Variety and the whole company has been shut down for basically rip embezzling, you know. Yeah. Then we got a deal from Image Entertainment. And at the day we were supposed to sign that contract, there was a hostile takeover and they chopped on every project that hadn't been completed, like executed. Um, and like actually drove to Image and it was like, I don't know, it was like the fall of Saigon or something there. I mean, it was like <laughs> people running through the parking lot boxes of, of things and people charging in. And there was like yeah. security at the gates that were like just not letting anyone in. So I actually had to park on the lawn and run in behind their backs, basically, oh. and go into the office. And the guys like our, our exec was cleaning out his desk when I got there. It was, oh, it was like just kind of like something out of the player, maybe. Um, yeah. And after we think the whole thing is finally just done and we've all moved on to other projects, we get this crazy deal because our film is about somebody obsessed with Annie Hall. Um, and uh, it's a kind of college uh, rom-com coming of age story about this kid who's kind of modeled himself on a you know, nebbish smart ass. And so the our producer runs into this distri distributor at a cocktail party and he's like, what happened to that Amy Hall movie? And he's like, nothing. And they make a deal in the cocktail party huh. with like a five-figure advance and everything. Um, wow. And this little company had an output deal through Warner. You know, it was like, essentially, it was a DVD, like big box store physical media release. Mm -hmm. It was 2007. And it was kind of exciting for a little while, but then the, the guy just completely... I mean, this was kind of 2007 was like the pivot year for um, digital media. I mean, 2007 was the year the iPhone came out. It was the year of Twitter was launched. It was the year of uh, YouTube was released. I mean, so suddenly like the digital age starts expanding super fast. Big box stores start going out of business everywhere. And the distributor was just like, you know, I don't think we're going to make money on this. And then he just stopped. So we never covered the advance we had a contract for. We spent... <laughs> basically the rest of the decade chasing them around. And then finally we got the rights back. So basically we had ne the, the film had never really been seen in its actual quality. Like the, the yeah. cinematography, the audio, we had really, we had taken the advance and mostly sunk it back into the finishing of the film and, and deliverables. Um, and we also did a, a week's run in New York 
at the Two Boots Pioneer in the uh, East Village. So, so basically, we so we did that theatrical run kind of as a loss leader to drive the DVD um, sales and stuff. And it, it was this is a foreshadowing because one of the things that was very interesting about this was I kept hyping it to people like knowledgeable people in the industry, like Ira Deutschman and uh, Peter Broderick, like, and we were saying, no, this is movie's great because it, it hits college age people and the young hipsters, but it also will hit Woody Allen fans and the, who I assumed were older urban types. And, and they always gave me this look like, mm, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. And I noted the, the skepticism, but I, but I was sort of, I mean, I don't know what else do we have to hang our hat on because the movie had no stars or whatever. And interestingly, I should say the other thing about Burning Annie was that our reviews kept coming in, even though we were showing these janky, low-res, you know, primitive digital video screenings at festivals, the festival reviews were, like, amazing um, oh, wow. for the most part. So we had to, like, rave some, like, Time Out New York and um, and so forth and so on. We, and so we just kept thinking, like, okay, well, there's something... The quality of the film is good, but how do you get people to watch it? Yeah. Um, and we're also in the era of like, you know, the, the Sundance dream of the 90s was, you know, make a movie with your friends and you're going to be wind and dined. And next thing you know, you're you're off to the races or whatever. And so we were kind of going for that when we I mean, you got to remember, we put the movie together in 2000, 2000, 2001, when that, that dream didn't seem so ridiculous by 2000. We shot it in 2002. We didn't really even premiere until 2003. So it was a thing where we were, we had all these reviews going into it and it was, um, you know, we were, we we're hoping for that like plucky underdog thing where like movie to watch or whatever. And it did have its fans, but the Mumblecore thing also was happening and it was, Mumblecore movies are so bad looking and bad sounding and so, they're so kind of, um, you know, the word narcissistic comes to mind. Like there's a lot of real pointing the camera at their own face. Like they're Mumblecore films are, to me are like almost like primitive vlogs. <laughs> like they're like what YouTube channels essentially is Mumblecore evolved into. Um I, I just never liked that kind of movie. And I'm not even that much of a Woody Allen fan. Um with the whole <laughs> debate about Manhattan versus Amy Hall is largely because of my arguments with Zach over it. So it's it's very uh it was kind of niche in its yeah. way. The niche worked out but getting thrown in with the mumblecore thing didn't because mumblecore was like kind of a it was like a lose-lose scenario for us because we were it was the hot topic it was the buzzword of that time period 07 in particular was i think the year that south by put mumblecore on its like cover mm -hmm. of its programmer and we were not mumblecore in any way shape or form there's no handheld work in the movie or uh, even remotely it's actually kind of an ensemble and it's really, you know, well photographed. So on the one hand, we could try to run with the hot thing and try to get some publicity off. And on the other hand, we could run away from it, which meant really no publicity because Mumblecore was taking all the oxygen. So it, the release was was um, was meh. The, the theatrical run was kind of fun, but it was really just an exercise in like, you know, kind of we just want to it's like a bride of passage, I suppose you say, for a young filmmaker. Like you just want to see your, the title on the marquee so you can take a picture in front of it yeah. and and all that stuff. Can I just the, jump the, in, Randy, and just say that yeah. we, because of it. the run, that this short theatrical run in Manhattan at the Two Boots Theater, which doesn't exist anymore, um, we did get the film reviewed by like the New York Times, The Village Voice. And so I like to say that it was 
worth it because it's important to get those uh, those reviews to yeah, generate exactly. audience interest so, in your film. That's really why and the reviews were decent. So yeah, the play was we're going to book this thing with good reviews. That's going to push the DVD thing going, you know, and then that way yeah. we can do one marketing thing. And it was you're just thinking like <laughs> you know an indie day and date essentially yeah. with the reviews driving the way. You know, don't trust yeah. us. Trust the Times. Trust the Village Voice. Right, right. I mean, I've trust I've them. heard definitely that from a lot of sources that theatrical, while perhaps not being a great source of revenue on its own, is great just because you can get those reviews and that those reviews help you throughout the you know, entirety of your marketing campaign. So um, that's that and that alone is a good reason to do that. So I think that's a great mm -hmm. point, Joanna. Thanks for injecting that. Um, so yeah, while, while I kind of, while I have you there, can you kind of let me know a little bit more about how Joanna actually got attached to the project and, and like when that was and what role did you come on to serve when you came on? Uh, I can answer that, I guess. Sure. Uh, yeah, please. So I got the film premiered at the Hampton Film Festival. I was yeah. there to help be on the marketing street team, if you will. And I had uh, told my parents about the film and they're from, I'm from Long Island. And so they were like, oh, we'll drive out and see the okay. film. It'll be fun. And so they did. I'm and, sorry. How did you get involved uh, with it in the first place? Oh, because Zach, the screenwriter, is a good friend of mine. Sorry, I didn't preface that. Zach's a good okay. friend of mine. He'd been telling me that he wrote this movie that got made called Burning Aunt Annie. His friend gotcha. from his friends from college got together, pooled money right. to finance the movie. And Randy's this, who from college is the lead producer. And I was seeing rough cuts of the film because Zach would tell me, Hey, look at this VHS of my movie Burning Annie. And if you know anyone who wants to put money into it, let me know, kind of thing. So like I watched gotcha. the first. I saw like my first viewing of Burning Annie was on a VHS tape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> smiles. And so it jumped to Hamptons. Uh, I had seen the film enough times at this point and I knew that it needed some money, but I wasn't expecting my family to be like, well, maybe we can help, you know, mm -hmm. but that's exactly kind of what happened. They liked the wow. film. My father in particular really liked it. And then uh, he spoke to Randy and said, you know, what's going on with this and how can I help? And next thing you know it, my father decided to be an investor in the film oh, wow. in some shape, way, or form. Yep. And so that's when I got involved and I got invested in the film. I was always invested mm -hmm. because my good friend had written the screenplay, of course, and I knew the college friends, but I was more invested now because of my father right. choosing to do this. But I wasn't really involved in any kind of deal-making in 2007. So... When he did the deal with Lightyear, he just told us, you know, he would give me updates on, oh, we got this going on and we're going to do the Pioneer Theater theatrical release. And I was there for that and so on. And I was just there as like a support system, if you will. Yeah. And then come to 2017, Randy writes an email and says, hey, we got the rights back. And now we get <laughs> to like put it on digital platforms, which is, and it's never been released on digital platforms before. And I'm like, and I was like, oh, okay, how are we going to do this? So I, I, I failed to mention I worked at USA Films early, early in my career. It's now Focus Features. I was a receptionist there a very, okay. very long time ago. And one of my colleagues at Focus was running a company, or he, and he still does run a company that acquires films for release in, on digital platforms. And so I contacted him and he watched the film and then he said, you know, it's not for us. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of realized that was going to, if I 
do contact any kind of companies of this kind, I was probably going to get the same response. I, I was thinking, okay, we're never going to, it's an old film. People wouldn't necessarily be interested in releasing an old film. And so I was on Facebook one day and Randy had posted on Facebook that he found his journals from the Sundance producing lab. Apparently, I did not know this, but he was at the lab with Burning Annie. And and I had just read that Sundance was uh, offering an opportunity for alumni to release their independent films through them. So I I told Randy, I'm like, I think this is how we're going to release Burning. We release Burning Annie and it's going to be obviously a self-release. And we just had to raise money for that. So I got involved in that. So we'll continue that story. I just want to backtrack a little sure. bit um, just to get that history. Sure. So I'm still trying to get a handle on, you know, kind of after your theatrical release in 2007, mm-hmm. you did ultimately sign with some kind of distributor. Is is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. Lightyear Entertainment. Lightyear. Um, that's right. Lightyear. Okay. And they had an output deal for Warner um, at the time. And so that it was a five-figure advance with um, like in a set of payments across certain release, you know, whatever's. The major thing was they were just going to manufacture an absolute ton of DVDs and send mm-hmm. them off to Walmart and Best Buy and stuff. Uh, right. Circuit City, all these chains that don't exist. Um, yeah, and Warner was going through its own sort of seizure. It was also the beginning of the like worldwide economic recession. So, uh, with the housing collapse and that whole chain reaction that happened, and th- so Warner cut its um, output deals like in two thousand eight or something, right after they closed Warner Independent. Yeah, and so the Lightyear was cut free, and the film was just kind of in limbo and we were like and also the the whole thing is you know in a classic distributor in the 90s you know that they're providing the p a and the marketing and original key art and all this stuff and like they weren't doing anything they were just mm-hmm. kind of they were almost as um like you've heard about contemporary vod distributors who basically just put a movie online and then just you know again foreshadowing yeah. there but um, yep. Essentially, like that's kind of what happened after Warner cut the deal. They they he just he stopped uh, acknowledging our contract and just kind mm-hmm. of went off with the title. And I have no idea if he was exploiting it and stuff. It showed up on YouTube. Hmm. We sent a copyright strike, and then he ref- he refused to like as the distributor and you know rights holder at the time. He was like he had to follow up. So with the copyright strike thing and never did. So the movie continued to be on YouTube, which really uh, annoyed the hell out of me. And in right. a, a cr- total crappy low res version too, like not yeah. even like a, so there was a, um, there was a lot of like horse trading. So we had a, like I said, a, we got a producer's rep and amazingly he stayed loyal to us through the entire five year disastrous kind of, Film festival wow. run where we were constantly not finishing the film, constantly not raising enough money, constantly like whatever. We won all these awards on the festival yeah. circuit, which is just kind of a miraculous in hindsight, considering the film was like never properly, even remotely like a, an official version. But um, Stephen Beer, um, he was our producer's rep, and he stayed loyal to the project all the way through the end, and and actually 
negotiated all three of those distribution deals I mentioned, um, mm-hmm. which is like God knows how many hours of back and forth all that was for his um, assistants and, and the lawyers. And, and is he staff. working? Is he working totally on commission on that, or is he? Are, are you paying him a kind of a flat fee, or what's the arrangement? No, no, he, on he that's was on that. On, yeah, he's working on okay. a percentage. Yeah, right, um, right. Wow. So he's putting in a lot of work that he's not getting cash for at that time. He's just investing his time in. We made given him a grand or something in 2003. Okay. So he he did all this stuff. And we had, we at that point, we had developed something of a rapport. The story with Stephen is a kind of, it's a, it's a telling one that might be useful for your listeners because, you know, at the time producers reps were, there are these, you know, individuals like Cassie and Elways and he's like with his, um, that section of that sort of William Morris financing department that they had. But they'd also like rep movies they they um you know financed and, and so forth. And John Sloss's Cinetic was also uh, like it's called Cinetic, but we all know it's just John. And so like that's not true anymore. Of course, it's we're now 20 years down the line. But like at the time, there were these guys like Jeff Dowd and um John Pearson. Yeah, exactly. There are all these books about these guys now and stuff. But basically, like you'd have to just you know, either try to find a way, somebody who knows them, who knows somebody you know, or you'd have to just cold call them. So I just cold call them. Like I would find them, and Dowd is working out of his house in Santa Monica. So I just drive down there and drop a tape on his porch and stuff, sure. and then follow up a week later. And we're talking VHS tapes here. So the whole thing with like this one day of post production every few months is like also we'd have to run dupes of these things onto these. VHS tapes and because I'd, I'd have this hit list of people to send them to of course distributors as well yeah. this was the era of where daily variety ran the production listings in the back and w- when I think about burning Annie's initial distribution the consistent thing that saved us on on uh, at the v- different various points were um, types of of media that don't exist anymore. For instance, the production listings in Daily Variety was something that I always read, but, um, oh, and it was like, someday I'll have a listing in here by God. Not that it meant anything, but it just was like, it was just, and, and the listings were everything from studio films to tiny independence. There was no mm-hmm. preference given. There was no sorting. It was just completely by date. And you could run through and see all this, oh, this film was commenced photography. This film was finished, principal photography, blah, blah, blah. So when Burning Annie's listing got in there, Little did I know that film festival programmers were the people who were also reading these. And so six months later, after our film was completely dead in the water in 2002, or late 2002, like December, where I'm spending all my days, you know, I've quit my day job, but I'm working freelance story coverage and analysis for both writers and production companies. And then in my daytime, I'm running from production house to production house with these HDCAM master tapes saying, give me your smartest tech guy because we cannot figure out why the time code doesn't work on these tapes. And then one day my phone rings and it's Mike Rabel at Cinequest. And he's seen the production listing, noted it was the story. There's like, you get, I don't know, 10 words for the line. So we threw Annie Hall in there. He's an Annie Hall super fan. He called, you know, he called me, what's the status of the film? I'm like, oh, we're we're out of money. Our directors left to teach at a film school. I'm basically doing everything myself right now and we cannot make it you know, we can't even move forward because of the tech problems we're having. He said, if we give you a screening at Cinequest, would it help you finance? And I said, oh, yeah, it could be. And and he said, well, we'll do that for you because sure. he had seen the listing. He liked the, the nature of the thing. We got on. It was just this weird Hail Mary out of nowhere because of that listing. And then, you know, later when with Stephen Beer, 
the what happened was I was on the phone. I, we were calling and calling, and some of them wouldn't follow up. Some of them would pass. I try to get an explanation. And of course I understood like the movie looks, it's on VHS. It looks absolutely terrible. It's like <laughs> raw sound. It's, yeah. Everything is just bad about it. Um, but Steven called the pass. One of the few guys who actually called himself the pass. And he mentioned in passing that his assistant was a big fan, um, but that he didn't get it. And, you know, sorry. And at that point he was the last producer's rep on the thing on the list he was just the only he just took the longest to call me back i guess or something and so i had nothing to lose like every we had had nose down the board so it was just kind of i just had a moment of like honesty with him on the phone i said i said yeah i have we you know we've heard that before we've heard that from everybody i don't understand why you folks get in this high risk high reward you know business when y'all you're looking for is certainty like yeah. if you want certainty, there's all kinds of like jobs you could have that give you all this financial certainty and all kinds of like, you know, you'll know what your whole 10 years is going to be in those professions. Why are you in the film biz if you can't handle risk? And there was this like long pause and I'm like, oh, he's hung up on me, fuck. And then he was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to look at it again. And so he went and watched the movie again and got it the second time. Wow. And that was the beginning of the friendship that continues to this day. Yeah. But it was because I was real with him that it that it kind of broke through, you know. Yeah. So that's great that you got so much loyalty out of him for so long. Um, but in the end, it, it seems like it was just because of the shifting marketplace, the shifting way that that the world of distribution was, that there just wasn't a home that you could find for this film. So uh, would you say that that's kind of accurate? Yes. I did the movie as a learning experience. I didn't really truly like love the material i would say i looked at it as a producer and thought well it's a zero budget prem with a, with a kind of high premise that kind of checks a lot of boxes and i really want to just go through this experience once like how long could it take yeah. you know because <laughs> i wanted i wanted to be a director i was kind of i didn't expect to get forced into directing the way burning any made me uh do it but it was a it was a thing where we were, we were trying to hit a zeitgeist that had already passed. We were making a movie in the model of clerks and uh, swingers in particular and um, uh, Rushmore, Bottle Rocket actually, probably more mm -hmm. than Rushmore. And uh, and it was the other big one of, of the mid-90s that, uh, oh, um, uh, Spanking the Monkey, the first David O. Russell. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So those were filmed in views. Like, and we were like, we can do that. We we had we had the arrogance to think we were just going to pull <laughs> off these careers like those guys did yep. and so we but we shot it after you know the turn of the century when Miramax was this massive bloated Oscar you know um behemoth and all the mini majors were also kind of extremely it was just too much money in the system there it had all just gotten corporate and so the we were chasing a model that had already like was kind of in its decadent phase and the next wave was mumblecore coming up under us and we didn't fit that mold either mm -hmm. it was just kind of nowhere land you know yep. i remember the big movie um the year we um premiered was uh igby goes down which mm -hmm. was used like five of the music cues we had in our <laughs> in our movie um and it was exactly the same sense of humor the same tone but it cost like 25 million dollars and yeah. had like four movie stars in it and 
And that's what, then that was when I was like, oh man, we have like mis miscalibrated this big time, you know. But we are, we we hung on to it because I think there's universal themes in the movie. I mean, the the coming of age and the romance and the the whole thing that's um, you know, the thing we're kind of not talking about is Woody Allen here. Woody mm-hmm. Allen's stock has fallen dramatically in the last ten years or so. But even at the time, I was like, this is not a movie about Woody Allen. This is a movie about modeling yourself on something you saw on tv which is a very common thing for especially for young men um and the and that so we there's a theme if you look through all of the supporting cast there's like all of his friends are in some way modeling themselves on some kind of you know poorly chosen pop culture um (laughs) artifice and and that was really the theme and i think that that holds up to this day i just the the realness of it is really kind of a non-starter. It's just a kind of, it just happened to be what Zach chose right. um, for that. If you we actually looked through the script the other day, just to see how, did we, how often do we even mention Woody? It's only mm-hmm. mentioned once in the opening. Yeah. And, and... <laughs> Joanna, I see you wanted to, to really say, yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. So when I saw the, first of all, I'm not a Woody Allen fan. <laughs> Yeah. I really, when I watched Burning Annie, I'd seen maybe two Woody Allen movies in my lifetime, and I had not seen Annie Hall. So I didn't know if I could watch a movie with this premise <laughs> without, do I need to have watched Annie Hall to watch this movie? And what I discovered was, no, like, yeah. this completely stands on its own. You don't, right. it, it doesn't matter. And I think uh, Randy explains why the Annie Hall thing is really incidental yeah. To to the plot, really. I eventually did watch Annie Hall like many years later. And yeah. I still was like, nope, like you don't really need to watch Annie <laughs> Hall to appreciate Bernie right. Annie. No. Yeah. No, I don't think I was so. more of a kicking and screaming kind of fan. So when I saw yeah. Bernie Annie, and that's Noah Baumbach's first film, which I saw in the movie theater. Yeah. And I don't think anyone was there except for me and my friend. But um when I saw uh Bernie Annie, to me it had remnant. Like it reminded me of kicking and screaming, the the milieu of college and Mm -hmm. just friends hanging out and having relationships and just going through the trials and tribulations of growing up. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, (laughs) I get this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So let's fast forward again back to to like around 2017. If you could just explain that again, like the Sundance connection. I'm not sure I quite got that. So so basically the... um, Sundance has a writer's lab, a director's lab, and a producer's lab. And in 2003, the producer's lab was not this exclusive. I mean, it kind of was. You had to apply, but it wasn't like the taste-making creme de la creme thing it is now. It was a little more open to the everyman filmmaker. And so I decided to attend um, because Burning Annie was locked in post. We were just kind of stuck and it was august of 03 so it would have been between the time we picked even beer as our producer's rep and the announcement of our premiere at the hamptons and i desperately needed some like wind in my sails Hmm. and we also needed to raise money because we the idea was we were gonna try to have a finished film at the Hamptons. Um, spoiler alert, we didn't. We It was a work in progress again, uh, which wouldn't have mattered because even if it had been finished, they didn't have the projection format 
that would have shown it correctly anyway. So it still would have gotten eaten by um, in the theater. So it, I guess it didn't matter. But we ended up going to the Sundance Lab and I took along Van Flesher, our director, which was kind of funny in hindsight that we had the nerve to do that because then we got there and they were like, oh, we don't have a bed for you in this. We had to stay in these cabins in Utah. And they were like, so they found an, a bedroom for him and, you know, or something. It was just very, <laughs> you just basically walked. Like you just crashed the party. Right. And it was great. But a lot of wind in our sails. And it was just like very inspiring to kind of rub elbows with guys like Anthony Bregman, who's like a producing hero of mine. And and um we came back and hit the ground running. Anyway, that was just like it, it's something I barely even I didn't even put it on my resume until Minor reminded me and I'd attended it in right. 2017. Um so not not to so rush you, but, is, but yeah. So yeah, let's talk about 2017. The year of the yeah. CPI. Yeah, the creative distribution initiative that Sundance mm -hmm. program was running was this tech and and you could you know they were in the middle of the Marvel revolution. It's eating all of the middle budget movies. Like everything is going to streamers. Netflix has started game uh, House of Cards and stuff. So where Sundance kind of was doing shops uh, all all over the country as part of the CDI thing. There they were. I attended several of them. I think four in total um and they were very cool but I'm, I'm in new orleans like i'm not in a major city so it's like it's always been very tricky for this like any market to like to kind of get into the rooms you need to and stuff this is where joanne has been so useful being new york based so she reminds me that it might be worth asking if my alumni ship or whatever you call it of from the producer's lab would mean something for the CDI thing. Cause it's really, they were really only giving these CDI projects to the stuff that had gone through their directors and writers labs, you know? <laughs> and so I called Liz Manischel and explained the project. It was, you know, this it's, it's like striking a match that's already been lit once. It's like, it doesn't, all you do is leave a smudge on the box. It's like, <laughs> nobody really wants to go near a 10 year old, 12 year old movie, like as interesting as it all may be. But she was like, this is unusual. The unusualness actually appealed to her. And she said, let's run it through and we'll see what we can do. So once we were approved for the CDI program, then it turns out that basically what it was was a, just a discount on Quiver, which is <laughs> like this online platform, premium, uh, premium digital, I think, owns it. And they gave us this like Sundance discount for putting it up on platforms and so forth. So we did a Kickstarter campaign, raised some money for basically to do just do a final HD master in all the ways we always wanted to. And like there was a couple of tiny things we tweaked and like we put we put the uh, time and place in a overlay across the opening shot just to like lock down when this film is, because as we were doing publicity for the re-release, we were discovering that people in their 20s could not figure out when the movie took place. <laughs> they were <laughs> right. absolutely baffled by the presence of landlines and yeah. VHS tapes and no cell okay. phones or whatever. Uh, if you don't mind, could you explain what the Creative Distribution Initiative actually is? It was a program that ran from 2016 to 2019 as part of the Sundance Institute. They were trying to encourage filmmakers to self-release their films and then be super transparent with how they spent money, what kind of returns they got from different platforms and so on. The major success story, I believe, is Thunder Road, right, mm -hmm. Joanna? Yeah, Columbus and Thunder Road, both movies um, also won their felt, like they were given money too. They were like, it wasn't like our situation where we really 
how to raise the money to do it ourselves. And those particular films, they were they actually were given a marketing budget and what have you to be able to do to release that film. And I believe they did they were case studies and that they were they are released. You can probably Google it and see like how that worked out for them financially, both of those films. Yeah. yeah. It was a very interesting thing to watch. I mean, Thunder Road was uh, won the best short film um, prize. It was a 10-minute winner um, mm-hmm. uh, a cop at his mom's funeral having a meltdown. And then that gave them the CDI to, for the feature version, which then they yep. did the next year. I wouldn't say it was like a, the CDI program was was not like a major, major splash or, or anything, but it was something that was reported on consistently by like IndieWire and everyone was kind of watching out of the corner of their eye because I think part of their agenda was to de-stigmatize self-releasing. Self-releasing kind of was always like, well, wah, wah. But really in the modern era with the power, the reach of modern social networks and the the nitrification, I guess, of culture where there's almost no monoculture left. There's like Tom Cruise and... Beyonce, maybe that's about that's all we got. Um, so there's like it's a it's a really interesting thing, and I'm I'm I've always been kind of like not that interested in you know commercial work, and New Orleans is nothing if not a a bunch of niches, but New Orleans itself is kind of a niche. So I've been I spent the last ten years making movies in New Orleans about New Orleans, and Zach made a feature film called Palace Living in 2014 before I guess retiring, and and so there's we've all been kind of all over the place, and so when this came around again, it was really, for me, I wasn't like going like, oh good, I'm gonna finally get rich off this movie. It was, the the thinking was, I can finally get closure and really show off the hard work that everybody involved put in. You know, it's hard to appreciate acting when you can't understand the dialogue because the audio mix is so bad and so forth. And so we really just, my agenda was entirely close the book on Burning Any Forever now it's out there and there's no middlemen we get you know every nickel although ironically um should we go into the quiver thing <laughs> go into the quiver oh, thing sure yeah. go into it the so quiver is also part of this weird zeitgeisty middle teens um moment where they were gonna be like the next like you know big great platform for getting kind of an aggregator basically so yep. it's a, an aggregator with a deal with sundance and instead, it's gotten it's gone through the entire cycle of like boom and bust in just five years. And now we can't get any money out of them because they have like no customer support anymore. And like they're just all our money is just stuck in Quiver. So what we've been doing is we've been extracting the rights from them and re- going straight to Prime and straight to Vimeo and straight to these other platforms. Because I when I released laundry day and i had already had so much more success just going directly around the aggregators instead of through them and so i was just like we should just do that with burning any so now we're trying to extract ourselves from quiver and they still they still have a cup you know they still it's a few hundred bucks but it's still annoying to have to constantly chase them down or harass them or whatever because they don't they don't answer anything anyway it's just sort of i don't know their office is in california so maybe the next time I go to California, I'll try to I'll go up there. Joanna, did you have something a, that you were? Yeah, there's a website. There's a website that I think a lot of a lot of filmmakers who are self-releasing and want to own their own IP. 
um, which is being encouraged, especially in this particular marketplace, by the way. It's called Film Hub. And mm-hmm. I believe, oh, yeah. Randy, haven't you used Film Hub mm-hmm. to yeah. get Laundry Day uh, out yeah. there? Film Hub uh, works for um, a percentage. So there's no upfront fees. You just got to deliver everything yourself. The tricky thing about Film Hub versus Vimeo and Prime, Vimeo and Prime are like their own platforms. Film Hub is like more of like a, it's a enlightened aggregator, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. And so when you put your film into, into Film Hub, the, the delivery requirements are essentially you have to try to hit every possible delivery requirement for every possible platform in every country in the world simultaneously. So it's much, much more difficult to get through Film Hub's kind of application system, I would say. But if you do, it's kind of amazing because then you just sit back and watch your film appear on all these bizarre platforms you've never heard of. South Korea, Brazil, you know, Senegal, et cetera. So you see see them appear and do you also see money appear coming back to you from that? Yep. And all of those platforms have the same direct deposit thing. Goes okay. straight to the LLC bank account. Right. So with with Quiver, then I, I guess, and I'm not that familiar with Quiver, but I'm learning and will need to learn more. But Quiver, as an aggregator, that's something that you kind of signed a contract. You signed a contract with them to take your film and distribute it to different streaming platforms. Is that how that works? I see Joanna kind of. <laughs> do you have something yeah, there? Because I, I saw kind of a scowl on your face or something like. <laughs> There's something to add. Please go ahead. <laughs> I just feel like I just based on what I hear from Randy, I just feel like they hijacked Bernie and me, and we yeah. can't get our rights back, and now we're like stuck with not being able to put it on other platforms using Film Hub, which is our preference. So was that sort of an exclusive deal that that you had to make with them then, that they had, you had to give the rights to Burning Annie to them and you couldn't put it anywhere else on your own? Is that how that works? No, 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 no. It's not, they they don't actually own the rights. Right. They have have is a relationship with all these platforms. And so what you do is you, the contract you make with them is that they have the right to run your film to these platforms and then make a deal with you know through quiver so it muddies the waters a bit it's not like like if you go to prime now and look up burning annie you'll see both quivers version like aka the sort of lightyear ish actually lightyear never even put it on prime so it's just version and then our version and you can tell by the key art because we've hmm. we've upgraded the art um since then but it's a um you don't want two versions on one platform. You want to funnel everybody into the perfect version that you want to show the world. And then there, and that funnel is also the financial funnel that sends the number of nickels to the filmmakers, you know, and Quiver is, has muddied that and is essentially diverting some of that river of nickels into their own. I mean, it's our money and we can't get it from them. Yeah. Um, so they don't have, have the rights. We could we could like do the whole thing with Film Hub. It's just a sort of something I need to think about. It's not super high priority. We should probably do it at some point. It's just a. It's just it, it'll probably require. So you have to send them a uh, ProRes four 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 HD master file that is like hundreds of gigabytes. So yeah. it would require me driving like. 50 miles out to this place I know that has a uh, fiber in the ground because the upload speeds are right. the only thing I could put a file that big up. I had to do that for the laundry day. 
Happy for a bunch of yeah. It's it, it's not impossible. It, it can be done. Burning any is not bringing in the amount of money that would kind of justify it. Like yeah. if we want to talk about the financials of it, I we spent about nine grand on the 2017 re-release, and yeah. in the five years it has brought in about five hundred dollars. I mean, part of the thing is like it's Woody Allen stock has you know gone through the floor. There is the proliferation. I think there's so many freaking movies now, um, mm-hmm. and it's sort of just like this weird relic. I mean, the most energy I've seen around the movie is actually the story of the making of. The hook was there's like no reason this movie should even exist, considering the the, the like lightning bolt from the sky problems we had there's so many random things that like should have shut it down forever and yet it's somehow like the little rodents who survived the meteor that mm-hmm. killed dinosaurs somehow this movie has survived like three generations of of indie filmmaking trends yeah so looking forward what do you see yourself doing in the future to you know your next film uh, if you make it what do you see yourself doing with it in the future well, Laundry Day is the film I made. We, we've got a distribution okay. deal in 2018. Mm-hmm. It's a feature film. It's technically, like I said, I ended up having to direct half of Burning Any, um, but I, my name's not on it because I didn't really do principal photography. But then we, we did, a, I directed a film with Zach, the screenwriter that maybe someday will release, but it's really just an experiment. And then finally, Laundry Day is like technically my debut. And it's really all about New Orleans, downtown New Orleans. And the thing that I discovered um, making that film is that it's it's a nonlinear, it's a story of a bar fight and it's told from multiple perspectives that move around in time and have interlock and sort of overlap in um, interesting ways. But it's the thing that seems to really move the needle with Laundry Day is the the niche New Orleans element of it, especially that it's very focused on service industry life. And anyone who's been like a bartender or waiter or like worked in a divey place of any kind loves Laundry Day, like, and especially people who have spent time in New Orleans. And so we we gave it to a VOD distributor. Um, we, we were repped by um, Circus Road and they did a very good job for a film that like basically played one, we played one film festival and won the top prize at it. And the thing about film festivals is I've really become disillusioned with them. Um, they they don't serve the function they used to um, back in the day. Like Cinequest calling me and asking about my film and if they can any way help it is like a thing that never happens anymore. Like essentially, I think film festivals needed films a lot 20 years ago. It, now they don't. Now they're just sitting back and pretending to be curators. But there's so many mediocre regional festivals where people are unqualified to curate. And so they're just basically raking in submission fees and the whole thing feels very corrupt. And I don't think being in a festival really moves the needle. I think it's basically like a faux theatrical screening, like substitute in in a way. Like, hey, you get to see it in a theater with a crowd and that's not nothing. But I wasn't going to go through the whole submission fee waiting, waiting a whole nother couple of years, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Circus Road directly and said, I've got this movie. It, this is who it appeals to. Let's just go straight to distributors. And they were they were down with it. They went, we got two offers. I chose uh, Summerhill. None of the offers had advances. Summerhill got the film, but they put it out in 2018. I did a bunch of local publicity around New Orleans um, for it, um, in, including a uh, worldwide bar tour where we played... <laughs> couple dozen like non non movie theater venues and convince them to have movie nights around the movie um 
bars, restaurants, courtyards, that kind of thing. And it was very successful for making noise in the city and getting a lot of local attention. But the pandemic lands in 2020 and I'm getting my statements from the distributor and I'm like, there's like, as long as it's VOD, there's a chance I can get, make money back. And they, and they told me, um, in 20, like early 2020, like, by the way, we've got good news. We're putting out DVDs. <laughs> wow. That was like standard deaf DVDs in 2020. What are you thinking? <laughs> but it only meant one thing to me, which is essentially, no, I'm never seeing a dime off this now. Mm-hmm. Like this deal is worthless to me now because they're essentially going to charge all the manufacturing and shipping against me. So, you know, so I was just sort of bemused and kind of like, okay. And immediately started planning, like, how do I get out of this contract? So I found the, the kill clause. I waited till they actually produced all these DVDs. Um, they sent me like 500 sort of, uh, not 500, like 50 uh, sort of gratis examples of it. And the, and like their key art was ghastly they didn't even mention my name they forgot the billing block on the back they like didn't use my it was just the whole thing was a nightmare they even printed the spine upside down so when you put it on a shelf it's like backwards <laughs> to the all the other titles so i was like all right guys like this is this is it um, i executed my kill clause got the rights back hilariously this is a little grace note to the story but in the contract there was also this clause that like if physical media is printed, you can buy it at, at like manufacturing price so I said, I want to buy your entire inventory of DVDs. And they said, oh, okay, great. Um, they're in a warehouse in like Pennsylvania. They're in somewhere outside of Pittsburgh. So I called the warehouse directly and I get this foreman on the line and he's like, yo, yeah, we got them somewhere. Uh, hold on. Comes back <laughs> 15 minutes later. Uh, we've lost most of them. They're, they're somewhere. We, we just don't know where they are. No, we, no. we don't know if we even got them from they might actually still be with the distributor in california like uh, he, they had no clue they just not in the inventory at all the computer system didn't have anything tracked it was so strange so i bought whatever they had left and sent it to me now the, the the thing that made this possible is that i had found a benefactor during the pandemic and she was a loves new orleans and paid for gave, basically gave me a check for like five grand and mm-hmm. so i was able to buy this inventory of dvds and then to finish that story they basically after we killed the deal and we were in the middle of the self-release the foreman from pennsylvania calls me and says we found the rest of them you want them i was like yeah i want them so he just sent me the rest for free yeah <laughs> just to get them out of his warehouse so, so it ended up that being ended up being great um and so with this five grand we basically i paid for new key art which you can mm-hmm. see over my shoulder here and mm-hmm. we, we were able to get a soundtrack album put out finally and I basically hit the, you know, hit the streets, putting them in every record store. And because music is like enormous here. So we have like any place there's like, so we can sell them individually or as bundles. And that inventory of DVDs, we took a whole set of stickers and we did a whole criterion, like a parody of the criterion, like director authorized like the, with the signature huh. and stuff. And we numbered them. And so they're all like limited run, like rare numbered and so forth. And so that all was pretty good. And so, and so once we got it on film hub and prime and Vimeo, it was off to the races. And so okay. I've now made, it's only been a year and yeah, it's been about 18, 19 months since we, since 
I self-released Laundry Day and I've made more money on it than all my other films combined. Wow, that's terrific. So have you made yeah. your money? Have you made your money back is a question that no. you feel free to decline no. if you want. But yeah. No, it's like the budget of Laundry Day was about, it was just under six figures. And so uh -huh. to make that budget back would take a while. But yeah. since none of the re-release money came out of my pocket and we also had a Kickstarter. So there was like basically, we're about, well, in 18 months, we're probably about, 10%, almost 10% of the way back through the uh, through the um, budget of the film, which is, and the idea is as we move forward, I'll make more films that are kind of in the same universe as Laundry Day and they'll all kind of build on each other. But uh, I'll tell you what the big lesson I learned is for your yeah. listeners and you is that niches are, niches are riches. Like you basically want something like a topic or a milieu that people are really interested in and passionate about, no matter how weird or small, you know, mm -hmm. there are all these stories. Like I'm a big podcast guy. Like if you go to um, any, like Liz's podcast or Alex Ferrari's or any uh like even indie wires and stuff there's you'll find these stories of people who like they made a movie about like luchador wrestling or they made a movie about um you know uh i don't know you name it raising pigs in the wild right and then they went to like let's say the pig filmmaker goes to the agricultural departments of universities and suddenly he's selling dvds directly off his website and earning a fortune <laughs> because the people who like they're never served you know these these little niches there's never going to be a Tom Cruise movie about luchador wrestling or whatever. So like right. you, so appealing to people who have never seen themselves on screen before is like really powerful. And yeah. Longer Day was not done with that in mind, but it turned out that the smallness and, and the specificity of it, I had spent enough like 2018, between 2018 and then the re-release, that was the real thing that really landed on me, that the people who kept coming up to me about this movie, which is often total strangers, because in New Orleans, it's a very small city, people will be like, oh, you're the laundry day guy, I heard about this, or whatever. Yeah. And it's also based on a real bar, which is a 24-hour laundromat diner wow. music club. Wow. So in that place, there's this whole, like a, a place where physically people can walk into and then be like, oh, there's a movie about this crazy place I'm in that is, that I have to see this movie now. And so it has been, there's, there still continues to be energy around the movie all the time coming from other people, uh, musicians and musicians are treated like service industry in New Orleans. <laughs> they're kind of everywhere and they're kind of taken for granted. <laughs> so they love you do it's it's a very interesting thing and and so that my advice is like focus on something really specific and small and underserved and you're gonna and and you will get traction i was gonna say also randy i think didn't you get a screening on louisiana's like channel streaming channel or something or other oh uh, yes there's a, a new sort of subscription like an svod called the uh, louisiana film channel mm -hmm. and they um joined there they're also a revenue sharing kind of thing so their thing is a little different because New Orleans is not really like the rest of the state. And so they're trying to appeal to like the whole of Louisiana in this interesting way. And I don't know that a wealthy family in Lafayette would care about the service industry of New Orleans specifically, but yeah. it's been, it's been, uh, it was flattering to be asked, you know, it's like always nice to be invited, but yep. the, um, the real energy is coming out of our physical media and soundtrack and believe it or not, uh, Tubi, Tubi is neck and neck with prime and revenue and has been for the last 11 months or so. 
ABOD or whatever they call it, mm-hmm. FACE. F-A-S-T. Free ad. Supported something. Yeah. Fast, 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 fast. fast. Oh, fast. Right. It's ad supported. That's that's yeah. all we need to know. But I was going to say that the documentary that I'm in um, an early production on we're fielding, you know, interest from sales agents already. Mm-hmm. Because what's the topic um, of your documentary, lines. if you don't mind my asking? I think you told the me. First but can you non, remind me? The first non-segregated housing co-op in New York City. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so we had a press release and deadline because uh, we got this grant from Firelight Media, or the director got this grant. She's a fellow, and that you know we got response from that that press release, kind of like the equivalent of when Bernie Annie was listed in Variety in the back yeah. and then Synetic Cream Calling. Oh, that's Synetic, I'm sorry. Uh, Synquest Cream Calling. I guess it's kind of like the equivalent of that, but um, we were still filming, obviously. So, mm-hmm. But we are thinking there's going to be a social impact campaign. We're definitely yeah. going to be doing community screenings and a big educational component. So we'll be getting the film into colleges and universities. It's definitely different from doing like a, a narrative feature film. We'd, we'd love to play film festivals mm-hmm. uh, and get, you know, because that will be probably most likely be our theatrical release. Although it'd be great to have a theatrical release. I'm yeah. not in this marketplace. I would say probably not. You know, we're, we're thinking we're probably not going to get one. So yeah, um, we hope to get a TV broadcast mm-hmm. for it as well. Yeah, documentaries, yeah. particularly kind of social issue documentaries, I think that you know yeah. they have a whole another kind of world of possibilities for them, and in some ways they're considerably less limited than the market for narrative features. So, and particularly, I think it you know kind of resonates with what Randy was saying earlier about finding a niche too. If you find kind of niche topics that you can really rally a particular community around, then yeah. there's you know a lot of viewing potential there. Uh, you know, to get eyeballs. Exactly. On the yeah. Like and our yeah. exactly. And the subject matter is about affordable housing, which is yep. such is in crisis throughout yep. countries and cities worldwide. So, because we're addressing a hot topic. There's gonna be there is a lot of gonna be a lot of interest yeah. in this film. Mm-hmm. Sounds sure. exciting. So I'll I'll have to you'll have to keep me posted and you. and uh you know as you're getting into Bye. your distribution phase, we can talk again. I love that. See how it goes. Yeah. Uh That's okay. Great. So yeah, been a been a great conversation, but just wanted to give either one of you a chance if you have any other thoughts or things you want to uh share real quick. And then if you have anything you want to plug or call to action or you know, where people can find you if they want to get in touch with you, want to follow you on social media, that kind of thing. So well, burningany.com is where you can watch yeah. Burning Annie. Um, right. You know, have the exhaustive history and excruciating detail if you're interested <laughs> in uh, like the ins and outs of those failed distribution deals or whatever. Um, laundrydayfilm.com is where you can watch Laundry Day. Yeah, it's it's uh, they're all out there. It's again, it's the attention economy. It's just the awareness thing. You know, nobody will watch it if they don't know it exists. Absolutely. I'm right. really personally overwhelmed by how much content there is out there i just it's it's nuts i don't have anything to plug i just want to say thank you for having us i really, really i enjoyed the conversation yep sure um, it's, yeah. it's great having you on as well and great having you aunt randy thanks for sharing all of your experiences and it's always interesting to hear you know every story about getting a film out there and burning annie has certainly had a long <laughs> a long interesting story so yeah, it's quite the cautionary tale in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I don't know, in the modern era, you know, this is why I think your podcast is such a good idea, because there's the landscape is constantly shifting. It was yeah. much more stable when we went through the burning anything. Yeah. And now it's like in two years, like there could be no Netflix for all we know. Like yep. it's, it's yep. just so erratic right now. 
All right. Well, that's all for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Then spread the word. Tell your friends, because I'm just starting out, so I can use all the help I can get to grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this uh, crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. Also, uh, I would love to hear your feedback, positive, negative, whatever. Comments, questions, suggestions, send them my way. Uh, if you have guests in mind whose experiences you want to hear about, let me know and I'll do my best to get them on the show. If you know people who have experience with self or creative distribution, please put me in touch. I'm on Twitter at JustScreenIt. My Instagram is JustScreenItPodcast. Or you can just email me at JustScreenIt at DarkRosePictures.com. Uh, by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my in-progress website for my feature and my other projects, uh, but it's not really up just yet, uh, just a coming soon banner right now, but the full site is coming very, very soon uh, if you want to follow my work. Anyway, that is truly all for now. I have lots more great guests lined up in the coming weeks. I'll be putting an episode up once or twice a week for the foreseeable future, so stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.